reactive. Mm -hmm. Does that mean not reactive in the mind? Does that mean not reactive completely? Or All reactivity would be seen as coming from the mind. Okay. And so to not be reactive in the mind is not be reactive at all. Okay. And so the, the Buddha um, had many first arrows, even after his enlightenment. Right. His cousin tried to kill him. He had backache, yeah. a karmic knot that he had from hurting somebody in a previous life. He had, uh, his disciples had many first arrow experiences after their enlightenment, but they didn't add suffering on top of that. Before going to the handout I gave you on dependent origination, I um, just wanted to refer you to the sutta. Um, it's 115 in the middle-length discourses, 115, MN115. It's called The Many Kind of Elements. And it's not in the handouts I gave you because we're just going to refer to it briefly. But I thought I'd read a few things from it. Um, the Buddha talks to a, a gathering of monks in front of him, <clears throat> and he said, uh, Whatever fears arise, all arise because of the fool, not because of the wise man. So here he's going a little bit deeper into not just ordinary people versus well-trained disciples. And so that's, there's not a lot of condemnation towards ordinary people. It's just ordinary people uh, react to negative experiences. <laughs> But here he's using the word fool and wise man, and fool is just a little bit more pejorative in talking about the ignorance in people and people who are really confused. So uh, because of deeply confused people, uh, fears arise. They don't arise from wise people. Wise people don't um, generate fear and don't spread fear. Um, whatever troubles arise, all arise because of the fool, not because of the wise man. And whatever calamities arise, arise because of the fool, not because of the wise man. Just as a fire that starts in a shed made of rushes or grass burns down even a house with a peaked roof and walls plastered inside and out, shut off secured by bars, shuttered windows. So you have a well-built house and next to it you have a little shed and a fire starting in that little tiny shed can tear down an incredibly well-built house, which would be secure otherwise. So too, whatever fears arise, calamities and troubles, all arise because of the fool, not because of the wise man. The fool brings fear, the wise man brings no fear. The fool brings trouble, the wise man no trouble. The fool brings calamity, the wise man brings no calamity. And then his attendant, Ananda, says, so um, what makes someone wise? What allows someone to, uh, to turn this pattern around and get, get rid of their foolishness? And the Buddha says, um, whoever is skilled in the elements, the bases, dependent origination, and what is possible and impossible is called a wise man or an inquirer. And all, all he does in this sutta, um, Majjhima Nikaya 115, 
So he goes in and he talks a little bit about the, the building blocks of experience. And so <clears throat> in Buddhist psychology, as you practice and you become mindful of what's happening moment by moment, you begin to see that your experience can be broken down into um, different elements, different qualities that are arising in the moment. So when he's in the sutta, he's talking about the, the, those who are skilled in the elements are skilled in seeing what's happening moment by moment. And as he goes through these paragraphs, he's, he would say, whoever is skilled in the elements knows a sound is different from a sight, is different from a taste, is different than a thought. So if you can begin to see that as you're sitting here in meditation, mindfulness, and you're breathing in and out, and you hear the sound of a bird, to be skilled in the elements is just to know, right, I was with my body sensations, and my mind was pulled to hearing sensations. They passed, and I returned my, my attention to my body sensations. And so you're looking a little bit more at what, it, what are the building blocks happening moment by moment. There are different sensory experiences in the body, in the sights in the eyes, sounds coming through the ears, taste through the tongues, tongues through the tongue, <laughs> odors from the nose, um, and then content of thought. There are these six types of experiences that we can have. And to be skilled is to rest your attention and then see, yep, there are these six competing experiences, and I sometimes grab them all and make a story out of them that tells, that unites them all under one story. I'm sitting here in Northern California, there's a sound, there's a crow outside, and I'm taking all these sensory experiences and I'm uniting them in an interpretation of what's going on. But you can see that that's what's happening, then you're skilled in the elements. You can see the building blocks of experience. How's this? Does this, does this feel accessible? Have I lost anybody? This tends to come out of those who have done um, some mindfulness practice where you can begin to uh, tell the difference between the experience of throbbing in your foot, but it's really just throbbing, and then an image arises in your mind, a picture of your foot, and then you tell a story. There's throbbing, and it's your foot that's throbbing. So those are two things, the image arising as an interpretation of the direct experience of pulsing in your foot. That's what it's like to be skilled in the elements. You can see what's happening. What are the building blocks of your moment-by-moment -moment experience? And that <clears throat> is part of the training that happens in mindfulness, is we sit down and our minds tend to do what they've always done. You sit there and they wander and they think about the past and they think about the future and you're just sort of living out those patterns. And slowly you begin to feel your body as you breathe. And you build the capacity over time that you're not just um, running the same patterns in your mind. You're not just running the same stories in your mind. And then you can see that what's happening in your mind is just mental activity here and now. You're not actually visiting the past. You're not actually organizing the future. These are the elements, these are things arising here and now as you sit here. So all of you have done, you've been to Spirit Rock before, and some of you have done uh, several retreats or longer retreats, 
And you will see that over time, as you do insight meditation practice or mindfulness practice, you get good at um, knowing what's happening in the moment versus being drawn into the past and future and then trying to solve worries about the past, worries about the future, and cogitating over them. You can say, oh, all that's happening right here and now is I was feeling my breath, heard a bird sound, reminded me of bird watching with my dad. My dad's getting older. I wonder how he, you know, what I could do about that, how I could help him. And you could be in that story, or you could see I was having an experience in my body, sounds arose at my ear, thoughts arose in my mind. It, one thought led to another thought led to another thought. Oh, I'm looking at the building blocks of the flow of my experience. How is that? Is that, is that accessible to people? Because <clears throat> that, that tends to be what happens with, uh, with practice over time is you have these two options. One, you can come into the relative stance where, yes, I can talk to you about the future and we can make agreements about the future. We'll both meet in San Francisco on Wednesday and have coffee together and we both show up. That's one way of looking at it. Or I can see I'm sitting here right now and thoughts about the future are coming up and desires to plan the future are coming up. I can see myself playing with them, but I can see that as a lot of activity here in the moment happening. That is becoming more and more skilled in the elements of your experience. So in the sutta, the Buddha goes through um, all the different types of ways of breaking down experience. You know, there are six types of experience, at one at each of the sense doors plus the mind. Um, there is uh, an element of knowing the element of pleasure when pleasure has arisen, knowing the element of pain when pain has arisen, knowing the element of joy in the mind or happiness when it has arisen, knowing the element of grief when it has arisen, knowing uh, equanimity and uh, ignorance when they've arisen, knowing them as they're occurring, knowing them one by one as they occur, and you get to see them, and then you can see them playing out patterns. And when you can see the patterns, you can begin to learn what, how you're constructing tendencies in yourself that are liberating or um, captivating in terms of capturing you. So that's what we're going to look at next is uh, the patterns that keep us bound to our suffering or patterns that liberate us from that suffering. And again, these patterns, as, as described in the first sutta, are the resistance to painful experience, the lusting after pleasant experience, and the, the dullness or ignorance that comes with neutral experience. Those are trends laid down over time, and we're going to see how those play out, how we construct them and how we deconstruct them. Any questions about that before we jump in? Okay, so if you all have this sheet, <clears throat> the penetration and the practice of freedom. On the back side, <clears throat> there are 12 words that are emboldened. And those tend to be, I mean not 10, but those are the 12 standard links of dependent origination, starting with avijja at the bottom, going through sankaras, vijnana, namarupa, salayatana, Pasa, Vedana, Tanha, Upadana, Bhava, Jata, 
Jati and Jaramarana. To really go into dependent origination in a way that you would feel confident and see all these moving pieces is this whole is its a whole workshop. So, um, some other time. <laughs> but <clears throat> we're really close to, to having insight into this realm coming off the two arrow sutta. So I want to go into it, but um, you won't walk away from this conversation we're about to have feeling like you really got dependent origination if this is your first time through. What we have on the other side is that you can see these same things. If you were to look under the column entitled Suffering, what I've done here is that <clears throat> there are certain chain reactions that lead to suffering on the left-hand side and certain chain reactions on the right-hand side that lead to liberation. And I wanna, I wanna show you this to show you dependent origination as a dynamic model to show what happens as these trends develop. So starting at the bottom at the left, we have the word avija. And if you put your uh, finger over the A there, you have the word vija. And the VI is the same as the VI in, vija, in vision, and the same as the WI in wisdom. Again, in the Indo-European languages, the WI, the VI, is a clarity of seeing. If you put the A in front of it, you get its negation. So not clearly seeing, not clearly understanding. The JA in Vija is just like the, the G in Gnosis or knowledge, which is KN, but it's the same sound. So you have the VI vision connected with the JA. It's clear understanding. It's seeing clearly, that leads to understanding. If you have avija, you don't see things clearly. So what might you not see clearly? What you might not see clearly is that things appear to be permanent. If you came in every week and saw this bell, you might assume it's the same bell that was here. And therefore, this bell is reinforcing the belief of permanence. You came to the same address and Spirit Rock was here. Therefore, Spirit Rock feels like it's permanent. If you're not paying close attention, the world looks fairly permanent. And they're changing things within it, but there's this sense that, like, yeah, things, some things are permanent, some things are not permanent. But this table, my body is fairly permanent day by day, then changes slowly, but I can relate to it and get away with it if I think that it's permanent. That ends up being a not clear scene. That every time I touch this bell, it, it's altered. I mean, it happens to be because it's metal. It actually is physically altered. There are dings on it from where it's been hit. There's a dent here. Every time I touch this bell, it actually does change, but not to the way we can perceive it. So by our perceptions, we're misperceiving its permanence. In its actuality, it's changing. The same is true with our bodies. The same is true with this physical building. It doesn't age every fourth Tuesday. It ages constantly but you notice it every now and then that it's changed. But if you knew it intimately, you could actually feel it creaking and groaning and shifting. You know, we notice the big earthquakes in the Northern California, but there are earthquakes happening all the time, but we don't feel them. And so we go from no earthquake 
to earthquake back to no earthquake. There's never no earthquake. It, there's always something happening. It's just we don't feel it. So we don't relate to the, the depth and the level of change that's happening. That's what this avija is in this column. And we're just looking at the avija of permanence. Are you guys with me so far? Mm-hmm. Maybe we have a question about that? If you go to the other side, you have vija without the A in front of it, and you get impermanence. So that's clearly seeing, you're clearly seeing the nature of change, that all there is is quickly changing things and slowly changing things, but there's nothing that's permanent. This bell is a slow, slowly changing thing. Uh, my words are quickly changing things. Our thoughts are quickly changing things. The chair below us is a slowly changing thing. The universe is made up of changing things except for one that's not changing. There is one thing that is permanent, but that's for also another time. Most of what we experience is constantly in a state in a flux. Coming up from that, if you go to the center column, what's confusing here is that an awakened person and an unawakened person have things in common. And I'm trying to pull into the categories, on the, I'm trying to pull out of the center column What's related to an ordinary person or someone who doesn't understand? I pull that out to the right column. And what's specific to someone who is awakened? I pull that over to the left column. The things that are in the center column are common to both. Okay? So there's some fundamental understanding that's at the very base of the central column. If your fundamental basic understanding is that the world is made of permanent things, you're over in the suffering category of avijja. Your fundamental understanding is that there are all things are impermanent. You're in the vijja category. Coming up just one level, you have this uh, Pali word sankara, and that's these deep tendencies of your heart and mind. The tendencies described in the two arrow sutta, built over time of resisting what's unpleasant uh, seeking, lusting after what's pleasant, and then ignoring what's um, neutral. All beings have these deep tendencies. The Buddha had deep, te- deep tendencies before and after his awakening. You have deep tendencies. Perfectly enlightened people have deep tendencies. If your mind has a basic understanding of permanent things, of the world being made of permanent things, your deep tendencies will be around resistance, lust, and confusion. Your sankharas, that's what we're having, the word sankara mean here, tendency. So this is paralleling what you see in the two arrow sutta. You have tendencies born out of misunderstanding that will lead to tendencies of resistance, lust, and confusion. If you have this insight that all things are changing, not just intellectual insight, but it's really how you see the world. And as you're looking and hearing, all you see are impermanent things. The tendencies that grow in your heart and mind tend to be compassionate. They tend to be a mind that releases because it's, everything's impermanent. It's very, there's a deep tendency of just releasing, not gathering or holding on to, but releasing moment by moment and wisdom. And these have their, their parallel in the other columns. So instead of resistance around pain, compassion arises. 
instead of lusting after pleasant experiences, there tends to be release. You have the pleasant experience and you release it. Instead of confusion developing, wisdom develops. How are we doing so far? Any questions about these two fundamental patterns? When you were talking about the tendencies in ordinary uh, beings versus, um, let's say, an enlightened being, the tendencies are the tendencies in an enlightened being the way the, the way the teaching does it. Are they are the unwholesome ones completely eradicated? Like if. And the ones that remain are tendency towards compassion and so forth. Yes. So the <clears throat> when pain arises, only wholesome things arise in that mind in regard to a painful experience. Compassion or patience, even uh, an urgent response to do something about it, but that urgency isn't based in agitation or grief. It's just you can see that through skillful action, I can prevent something worse happening, but it's not from uh, internal trauma or agitation or stress. These two down here, um, usually when you look at dependent origination, you have avijja leading to sankaras, and avijja is the not seeing clearly, sankaras being these deep patterns in the mind. Um, they're a setup for what happens in the present moment. So if you have a tendency in your mind of not being able to handle pain or being compulsively attached to pleasure, or if you have a tendency to be bored or drifting when there's neutrality happening, that will influence what happens as you come in to experience the present moment you're in. Likewise, if you have a, a fundamental wisdom in your mind that sees things clearly, then the trend that develops over time is one of uh, releasing pleasant experiences. They happen and you don't cling to them. Compassion is one of the things that arises around pain. And around neutral experiences, you don't space, space out. You tend to still cultivate intimacy with your neutral world because you know that it's, it's a productive thing to do. It tends to be pleasant in the moment and it tends to be skillful not to have the mind be weak and drifty, even though you can get away with it while you're in a place of neutral experiences. <clears throat> These both feed into the next links, one, two, three, four, five, um, are common to uh, awakened people and unawakened people. But how you feed into them impacts what's going to come out of them. So. Awakened people and unawakened people have consciousness arise. They're, they're, there's an activity between the mental states that are arising and the experience. So if you eat something or smell something or see something, there's a, there's a back and forth between the dynamics of your mind and what it's encountering. It's called nama rupa, this link. But it's a sort of a dynamic um, exchange that tends to take in information at one of your six sense doors. There's a moment of contact, and that contact produces Vedana. 
This is happening for all beings, whether you're awakened or not, whether you're well-taught or an ordinary person, whether you're a fool or a wise person. But if you're going into it with these underlying trends, you'll have this period of um, cognition of what's happening in the present moment. And out of that will come, you go back into the left column or the right column. I don't want to lose anybody here, so if anybody's starting to feel like this is starting to, they're not grasping it, um, let me know. So if you went into the present moment with these underlying tendencies that were strong of resistance, lusting after present experience, and confusion, out of that present moment there would be a Vedana, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral experiences, and you would kick out some type of reactivity. Some type of reactivity would come because of the underlying tendencies that you had. It tends to be craving for pleasure or something that you're not having. That sets you up for clinging. So you crave more pleasure. You crave something different than something neutral or unpleasant. And that craving and seeking tends to set the mind up to latch on latch on to something uh, pleasant. It sounds like a, a solution to um, your underlying agitation. So if you lead into the experience, this present moment with these underlying tendencies, you'll come out of the experience with reactivity. That reactivity keeps going and it, it goes through a clinging stage and then it goes into you begin to build a self-story around what's happening. So, <clears throat> um, again, maybe thinking about going into the hospice ward. When I first walked in, being a young person, not that familiar with uh, people's actual dying process, I knew intellectually that people were going to die but I related to people as if they weren't. It was just, it wasn't a useful thing to me to like talk, you know, like every day, who's alive? Gotta call everybody and see who died last night. It's like, well, most people didn't die last night. So even though I intellectually know we're all gonna die, my daily functioning view was that no one died and it kind of worked. <laughs> so it's just sort of the daily operating view, even though if you said temple or people Dying or not dying? It's like, well, of course we'll die. I knew that intellectually, but my operating reference point was people don't die. I go into the hospice ward, and oh my God, people do die. These people die. These people are dying. I'm also going to die. Like, it became much more evident. So I had an underlying tendency to think that people were permanent. And then when I came into contact with the fact that people were dying, that brought up a lot of agitation in me. It was very challenging to be in the hospice ward and see people actually dying. So even though I, I knew it was natural on one level, some part of me couldn't help but crave something different than that. I wish this person wasn't dying. Oh my God, that means my parents are going to die. Like I'm getting this on a deeper level. I'm going to, I'm not permanent. And so it stirred up this agitation and I began to cling, like, how can I not experience this? 
How can I not experience the dying process? It's so, and how can I not experience it even immediately walking into the hospice ward? So I began this agitation. Then kicked in this other sense of self. It's like, oh, temple doesn't get to last forever. And that's challenging. As much as I kind of knew that beforehand, being given direct contact with the fact that people died, people are dying, it began to change my worldview. So <clears throat> what will happen is that if I lead into a situation wanting things to be permanent, I'll come out with reactivity around the fact that things are not permanent. If I'm not aware of that, if I still fundamentally need things to be permanent, I'll start building a strategy around that. How do I make things permanent? I moved into a house. I like living in that house. My landlord wants to sell the house. How do I make this permanent? I want this to be permanent. So I begin this agitated, uh, desperate plea with the universe. How do I get to not have this be impermanent? And I start building a self story in my mind around attaching to something that I like. Eventually, I will have to move out of this house. Either they'll carry me out when I'm dead, or I'll move, or they'll sell the house. This house, I will not be in this house forever. But I kind of want to right now. So I kind of want it to be forever as far as I understand forever. And when anything threatens that, I get very scared. So that's where coming into this uh, clinging and then identifying with what I've clung to. In this last example, the house that I'm living in. Eventually, this house and I will part ways because we're both impermanent. If I can't come to terms with that, I will suffer and I will try to work harder at making things permanent and I will feel grief every time I realize that things are not permanent. Over on the left-hand side, with a deeper attunement to the impermanence of all experience, there's compassion, there's release, there's wisdom. As a strong tendency in me, I come into a, a flow of experience, come all the way up, no matter what the Vedana, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, my mind stays content. So it doesn't matter what the Vedana is. I haven't coupled my mind to the experience I'm having. Because of this underlying contentment, there isn't craving and clinging. And then I'm able to release that experience rather than cling to it. I can let it go. This is being, just coming into being just coming into the flow of experiences, whether they're pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And you're content and you release. The next moment arises, you're content and you release. The next moment arises, you're content and you release. You can just keep doing this. This is being without doing. You're in the flow of unbroken contentment, no matter what the Vedana is, no matter what the experience is. This is just as described by the, the well-taught disciple, experiencing only one arrow 
And then when there's no one arrow, you're just feeling pleasant experiences and you're content and they are released. You can then go into becoming, but it's not driven by clinging. So the Buddha can decide to walk for an entire month to go from one kingdom to the next. The desire arises in him, he acts on it, and it happens. And so there is a type of becoming that's allowed, but it's, 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 a, it's not arising out of discontentment. It's not arising out of struggle, which means that it's also easily released. As either he is heading from one kingdom to another and he gets there, or he's heading from one kingdom to another and the plans change, it's very adaptable because in its makeup, there isn't uh, an attachment to the goal, and he hasn't wrapped his self-story around the goal. And then when he arrives at the other kingdom, there's a release. There's a release of that goal, the release of the, the one who is doing the project to get there. Is this at all accessible? Mm -hmm. It is? Did I lose people along the way? Okay. Again, to, to get in and really teach um, dependent origination so you understand each other, we kind of galloped through it at, uh, at a pretty good speed. So um, if some people got thrown out of the cart <laughs> as we were galloping, uh, sorry about that. <clears throat> but in this model, an awake person and a confused person, the important distinctions are what type of trends, what type of uh, tendencies are you developing? And that is going to govern how you respond to your moment-by-moment -moment experiences. And if reality turns left or right, you can adapt with it because you weren't uh, stiffening up your response to what you needed to happen. You need to go one way or you need to go the other. You can let things happen as they will. And then out of that, you can still um, make plans for tomorrow and show up for them. But if something happens and you can't, you can let go of them because you're not, uh, you're not clinging. You're not um, binding yourself to the outcome, binding yourself to the... Uh, the identity of the one who made that choice. So it's very fluid. And many steps along the way are just momentary steps. Now I'm drinking this cup of tea. Now I'm getting into my car. Now I'm driving in my car. Now I'm getting out of my car. Many, many moments arising and passing with an overarching idea of where I'm trying to get to. But if something happens along the way that doesn't allow that original goal to happen, it doesn't also lead to stress because it, uh, it wasn't born out of clinging to the goal, clinging to the outcome. Any questions about that? Anything that would be clarifying? Sense pleasure um, at a, or 
an escape from not feeling the painful. And so that usually you know, my mind sort of focuses on, oh, you know, don't cling to this, don't cling to that. But now I, I see that it's not, that it's too, um, too, too far down the path to focus on. It's more like, I feel like I need to focus further back on where the, my intention, <coughs> my desire comes from to begin with. Does right. it come from an escape from something? Is it wrapped up in my story? Or, um, yeah, or is it coming from a release? <coughs> right. One time I was <clears throat> teaching a teen meditation retreat in Virginia, and uh, right before we were coming to a Dharma talk, um, these kids just broke out in their free time and started playing in this river, which teenagers will want to do. But it meant that they were sopping wet, and they, you know, half the room showed up and were ready. These other teens were missing, the staff were missing trying to get them. And I just started to feel this incredible stress inside. I, was, I had prepared a, like a half-hour talk. And I didn't know what to do about, like, should I give it to the kids who are here or the kids who are not here? Um, and then they, the kids who came in, they came in. They were dripping wet. And I was like, God, the plan I had just did not make any sense for this reality. <clears throat> but I already I had this little mantra. Um, between what I prefer and reality, go with reality. So <laughs> let go of what you would prefer to happen and align with what is happening. And it took some time. So the kids sat down and I was sitting there kind of boiling over with stress and not knowing what to do and why did they go do that and rah, rah, rah. And I just let it settle, let it settle, let it settle. Like, this is what's happening. This, this moment is like this. This moment is just like this. And then in that, a new kind of talk arose. And in that, I was able to talk to the whole room just about something else entirely. I was able to get to that place because I was able to let go of what I had intended and get to uh, what was actually happening, what was actually useful in the moment. And so that um, the, the escape was from binding into what I wished had happened to letting it go and realizing reality is now like this, this present moment is like this. And then moving forward versus being attached to what I wished had happened. I'm not sure if that resonates with what you were just describing. Being um, aversive to what you don't prefer or what is unpleasant or you judge as much. Right. There's a quote that says um, from the, I think it's the sixth uh, Chinese patriarch of Zen <clears throat> that begins um, The Great Way, which is the Eightfold Path, the Great Way is not difficult for those who do not cherish their preferences and yet make the slightest distinction between what you love and dislike, splitting those two, you split infinitely apart heaven and earth, heaven and hell. So preferences 
are tricky because they begin to see this struggle over difficult experiences, unpleasant experiences, and disliking them. Disliking them leading to resenting them or pushing them away versus pleasant experiences that we prefer and then begin to uh, hold too tightly. And what is it like to be intimate with all experiences and let experiences come and go and let something pleasant arise and be pleasant for the few minutes or hours that it gets to be pleasant, but not ask more of it than what it can provide. And then as it passes, be okay with its passing. For a lot of us, that's a tall order to do that perfectly. But that's the guidance, that's sort of the compass heading for us to allow Vedana to change, to allow pleasant and unpleasant experiences to arise, to not resist unpleasant experiences. And then see how that plays out. What do you uh, imagine? <laughs> I like it this way. Yeah. Any last questions before we bring the day to an end? Yeah. I don't think this is a, really a question, but in terms of my practice, then when I'm getting out of this, it's a good place to pause in Vedna. Hmm. Just watch it, pause, and then I guess somewhat, I'm not sure I really have a choice as to which way my tendencies are going, but if I pause there, I can see it a little more clearly. Hmm. And then what? Deconstruct my tendencies, or can I lean one way or the other? Because I, I sort of noticed with Vedna, so if I'm a hit Vedna, I'm picking up steam. Right. And, and I sort of blast through the Vedna. The re is, that, is that in terms of practice, then, is it good to rest in Vedna? It is, and it's hard for some people to do that as a primary practice. So, you might rest in body sensations or sounds, and then while you're resting there, become aware of the Vedana quality while you rest there, rather than trying to rest your attention on the Vedana itself. It tends to be a little bit too ephemeral to have the mind rest there, but if you rest on the breath, as you're making contact with the breath, there will be Vedana. So if I, if I ask you to look at my hand, and is it pink or is it, are there five fingers? And it's like, well, it's both. You can see the five fingers because it's fairly pink. It's the same thing. Is this, you know, uh, is this straight or red? Or is it curved and red? Well, it's both curved and red. So when you go to the breath or you go to sound, while you're resting on the sound or you're resting on the breath, at times what you can do is be resting with the in-breath or the arising of sounds. And while you're there, become intimate with the Vedna that's also arising while you're resting on something more tangible like breath or body sensations and spend some time inquiring about and becoming familiar with the Vedana quality of it. 
and if you're if you're struggling, <clears throat> there, there, it's good when you're struggling. One time I went to a cafe. It was my favorite cafe, and I hate Ashbury. And I liked their cookie. I liked their tea. I liked their music. I liked the ambiance of the people who came there. And one time I got everything, sat down, and I was doing my work. But I was like, I'm just not as happy today. I wonder why that is. And I was like, what would it be? Like, my body feels good, my mind's good, I like the work I'm doing. Is it the people? Is it the music? I was like, no, what is it? And I began to do a Vedana search. Like, I probably couldn't be this bothered unless somewhere the Vedana wasn't doing it for me. Huh. So where is it? It's not in the body. It's not in the and I took a bite of the cookie. I was like, it's the cookie. <laughs> <laughs> That they changed brands of cookie, and this one what didn't have the was a, both were chocolate chip cookies, but I like the crunchy kind, and this was softer, and the flavors weren't as distinct. Like it's sweet, it's chocolatey, it's you know it's chocolate chip cookie, but it's not the one that I liked exactly how I liked it, and because of that, this afternoon isn't as great as the other ones, and it's like well, so I was like okay well you know this is fairly small I'll put it aside. And I began working a little, and then without really paying attention, the story began to snowball. And I said, you know, I'm a loyal customer here, and I do like a certain brand of cookie, and maybe they just have never gotten the feedback around their cookies. And so it snowballed to the point where I started wrapping up the cookie, and kind of these plans started arising that I was going to go up and talk to this poor cashier who had like a line of 15 people trying to offer coffee. I was like, do you know the type of cookie that you have isn't as good and it kind of ruined my afternoon? And I'm like, yeah, I can let this one go. This, this, is, this is small stuff. But because I, I just liked that cookie to be, to be the way I like it, I'd grown attached to it and it didn't seem bad at the time until they changed brands of cookie. So where there's stress, where there's agitation, where you're being bothered by something, chances are there's a Vedana quality feeding the stress. There's an attachment that things should be the other way. You know, I like, I, we've had a housemate stay with us for a while, and she likes uh, what I call clutter, and she calls decoration. <laughs> and so it, the place is much more decorated than, it's like, uh, it's kind of overwhelming. It's like, well, what's Vedana about that? Well, it's just, when I look around at a kind of a, a simpler environment, it's soothing to my mind, and that's where the Vedana is. I look around in my mind, that's how I like it. So it's that calming Vedana tone of like the pleasant to slightly neutral. I like that. And so when there's all this stuff around, I look around and it's just too busy. And that, I find that unpleasant. And so I'm starting to argue with her because I don't like the Vedana arising of the unpleasant visual experience. Knowing that that's what's happening, I can then talk with her about our long-term compatibility and what to do about that. But not knowing that, I begin to kind of attack her choices around what she's doing in the house. And then we have this very personal thing versus knowing, oh, I'm attached to a certain experience and I'm not getting it. And that's fueling my discontent. What if my contentment weren't based on the decor of the house? What if I actually recovered my sense of contentment irregardless of what things look like? and then have a conversation about how we want to organize the house. So where there's struggle, where there's suffering, um, where there's a second arrow, usually there's a Vedana quality that makes our second arrows come. And it's really helpful. I can keep blaming the circumstances. 
that I can see that it's actually my, uh, my unwillingness to receive some first arrow experience that leads to this underlying uh, agitation. I have to bow out at this point and uh, say goodbye to you all. I have a class that I'm teaching back in the East Bay. So thank you very much for coming today. It was a pleasure to spend the afternoon with you. I wish you all a happy rest of your day and evening. And I hope thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.